If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. When we think about the experiences of people with learning and intellectual disabilities in the past, we often think of discrimination, poor treatment and exclusion. And in many cases, that is accurate. Yet, Lucy Delap, a historian at the University of Cambridge, is keen to highlight another side of the story. She spoke to Matt Elton about how her new research into the experiences of people with learning disabilities in the first half of the 20th century reveals a surprising amount of access and inclusion. So your research explores the experiences of people with learning disabilities in the first half of the 20th century. If you had to sort of summarise for people who are coming to this fresh, what would you say that the main takeaway of your research here is? A lot of the existing histories of people with intellectual disabilities has been really focused on segregation and confinement. And that has meant that historians haven't looked very much at the lives of people who just lived in the community. And that was the majority of people with intellectual disabilities, although there was a kind of push to try to get people into asylums and colonies and and to get them under the control of the authorities, actually that, that never really covered the majority. So most people lived outside of those asylums and that meant that they had to work. This was a time when everyone who could worked and that applied to people with disabilities as well. So my big focus was to try to say, well, what kind of working lives did they have? And there's so much to sort of get into and explore here. One thing that really struck me was the sense that the proportion of people with intellectual disabilities was much higher than we might expect and even much higher than it is today. Can you talk us through that a little bit? There was a really expansive definition that was sometimes associated with terms that we wouldn't use today, like mental deficiency or or handicap. And those terms were kind of umbrella terms that might take in people who had all kinds of cognitive impairments or just people whose lives didn't quite fit the mould. People who, you know, were kind of troubled adolescents or who were involved in petty crime or who were deemed to be promiscuous. So that meant that some people who were labelled in that way, we wouldn't recognise today as having any kind of learning disability. They were just people who you know, maybe had got pregnant without being married for young women, for example, they were sometimes regarded as moral imbeciles. And that term really just meant kind of, yeah, sexually unconventional, shall we say. Is it possible to put a figure on the employment rate of people who fell into this very broad sort of nebulous category? It varies over time. And there always was a sense amongst observers that they didn't really know how many people did fall into that category. But where they talk about the people that they do think they know about, the employment rates vary from sort of around 40% to perhaps around 70%. It was quite gendered, so men were much more likely to be in work than women were in paid employment. Women were definitely working, but they were often doing housework or kind of informal childcare. But the numbers are really startlingly high compared to today, where, you know, we, we might be looking at employment rates of less than 5%. 
And I suppose some of that might be a change in terminology and definition, but it still sounds like that's a big change. Yeah, we're not always comparing like with like, but even so, there's lots of evidence to suggest that people who we definitely would recognise as having learning disabilities today were successfully integrated into paid employment in the past. And that kind of spanned different sectors. It wasn't just that they were all doing agricultural work, say, or sort of menial factory jobs. They were doing service sector jobs. They were doing sometimes quite skilled industrial jobs. They were working in mines. They were doing like pit top jobs. Sometimes they were kind of fairly well paid. Sometimes they were founding their own businesses. Sometimes they were stuck permanently on on the very lowest entry wages and and were doing very boring work. But, you know, there there is that amazing spectrum of uh, forms of employment. And I want to explore that spectrum because it is really interesting. Before we do, I just wondered if we could talk about the years that your research spans. Is there a reason that you focused on the years that you have and which years are they? When you look at disability history, it's often organized around sort of you know turning points of of big bits of legislation where the government says oh you know we're going to take this kind of approach to the disabled population but I wanted my research to be much more focused on labor markets and the kinds of employment options that were available in other words to bring disability history much more firmly into a kind of wider economic history narrative so I actually start my research in the kind of very early years of the 20th century when the trade boards were set up. And that was a a minimum wage infrastructure that was trying to put a floor on wages in sort of sectors that were, were seen as exploitative. And that's got nothing to do with disability. But as it turns out, it created this amazing archive of the labour of disabled people, not just people with intellectual disabilities, but all different kinds of impairments. And so I'm starting at a place that isn't very familiar for disability historians, but I think, you know, gives us a real insight into working lives. And then I go forwards, really across most of the 20th century, to think about the period up until the closing decades of the 20th century, when you get deindustrialization and a kind of major economic change, and the rise of new forms of work associated with computers, new kinds of educational approaches that saw people, you know, expected to achieve school qualifications. And I think that those things, again, made a real impact on the lives of people with intellectual disabilities and cut them out of lots of labour that becomes common in the late 20th century. And even within the period that you cover, there's obviously a broad range of social shifts. And I want to make sure that I'm not flattening any of those. But to go back to the thing you were talking about just then about the range of work that these people were included in, did it really genuinely cover the whole gamut, the whole social range of the types of jobs that were available? I don't think you get people working in professional employment where, you know, you had to have certain kind of key intellectual skills and professional qualifications. But apart from that, yes, it actually covers everything. So I came to this research because I was interested in people working in domestic service. And I was really surprised to find so many people with intellectual disabilities in that field. And, you know, that kind of gave me my research question, really, which was, okay, I know they're working in domestic service. Are they working in other fields as well? It took me about a decade, to be honest, to to find ways of evidencing that they were, in fact, working in, in other places. So when people are employed in open labour market jobs, they don't necessarily leave very many archival traces. And there wasn't really any way of determining who was and who wasn't disabled or intellectually impaired. So it really took a lot of searching the archives to find ways of showing that, yes, people are working in a whole range of industrial 
jobs, they're working in factories, they're working in in workshops, they're working in extractive industries, they're, they're in the steel industry. And they're also working in service sector jobs where they've got like lots of contact with the general public. So they're not kind of, you know, stuck in a cupboard somewhere, putting things in boxes or bags. They are doing that sometimes, but they're also digging graves and sweeping the streets and emptying bins and working in hospitals and, you know, scrubbing the floors in in wards, even doing low-level nursing jobs and things like that. So, yeah, you find them absolutely everywhere. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. You mentioned there some of the sort of archival detective work that you've had to do to uncover these stories. How did you go about finding out these stories? What was the sources that proved particularly useful? The problem with trying to chase a category like people with intellectual disabilities is that they're not categorised in that way in the archive. So a lot of it was just staying open to the archives and then, you know, sometimes having a kind of lucky moment where where stuff jumps out as being relevant. So to give you an example of that, I was searching through the Ministry of Labour archives and just happened to come across this incredible survey in 1955 where a group of European civil servants had asked the the Ministry of Labour what they did in relation to people with intellectual disabilities or learning disabilities. And that led to a correspondence between the central ministry civil servants and every single labour exchange in the country asking them, oh, what do you do for this category of person? And so that was a kind of brilliant, lucky moment where I suddenly have this national snapshot. 
But apart from lucky moments in the archive, the, the other way to try to figure this out was to look at the trades boards and to, to look closely at the records of people who sought exemptions from the minimum wage. And when I say minimum wage, this isn't contemporary minimum wage. This is the minimum wage system that only applied in particular sectors, but it was still pretty extensive. It covered millions of workers across the 20th century. So employers would sometimes say, well, look, I'm employing this person, but they're not worth the full wage. And here's the reasons why. And you get some really fascinating correspondence between employers, inspectors, and the, the minimum wage administrators kind of tussling over what is this person worth and sometimes they literally go and talk to the worker or they go and talk to the worker's family so we get a little bit of testimony from workers themselves that you know their own voices sometimes emerge from the archive or their fathers or their siblings or, or whoever it might be and we get the employer also characterizing like what is this this person and, and what are they worth and you know that has proved to be a really rich archive that goes across most of the 20th century and gives us a sense of economic value. And are there any case studies that you can highlight that are particularly illuminating or that tell us something about this wider story? One of the figures that I became completely fascinated with was a, a man who called himself Hugh McGowan, although he had a number of other names that he appeared under in the archive. And he was super interesting because he fought in World War One, but he had a very checkered time of it in the army and was disciplined for a lot of offences. So he wasn't, I wouldn't say he was kind of your perfect soldier. He was injured in one of the battles and invalided out. And he sought a military pension. But the doctors said that he didn't qualify for a military pension because his disability was already existing and they, they termed him backward or mentally defective. And he contested that. He wrote lots of letters. He was very good at writing letters. He even typed them later on in the, in the century, asking for state support as a former soldier. So he was kind of pulling the lever, if you like, of being a veteran. And the Ministry of Pensions was trying to pull another lever, which was, no, this is somebody who should be regarded as congenitally disabled or backward. And so there was there's a kind of a wonderful archival trail of these letters where Hugh McGowan describes his life. And he doesn't live a very easy life. He's right on the economic margins. He he talks about, you know, when he's got enough money, he buys goods and then he he sells them to try to make a kind of a fractional profit. But he's also convicted of theft. So he steals stuff. He steals stuff like boots, bacon, watches, you know, very kind of petty items. And so he's repeatedly brought to the attention of the authorities because he gets convicted or he's kind of living homeless. So he's a good example of somebody who didn't have an easy life, but he writes these amazing letters which tell us about his life and tell us about his working life. And he's he's employed all over the place in different roles. He's uh, shoveling coal. He's working in a power station for a period. He's a fisherman for a period. So it gives us a sense of this like amazing diversity for people who were kind of labelled and othered by the authorities, but actually lived their lives quite independently of, of all of those systems of care and control. That's so interesting because there's two forces at work there, which you talk about a bit. One is precariousness, so the precariousness of his life and of the existence he was able to make, but also his access to work was higher than we might perhaps expect. Is that fair to say, both those things? That's right. The kind of twin dynamic of the research that I've done is to try to say inclusion is possible. And under a variety of different 
labor regimes or political economies, it's possible to see value in workers who have impairments in a wide variety of ways. So, you know, in a way, this is a very positive and optimistic story about inclusion. But in another way, I don't want anyone to think that there was ever a golden age of everything going right for people with intellectual disabilities, because they did encounter stigma and discrimination and hardship. And a lot of them did lead lives right on the edge. So, you know, they are domestic servants. They are heaving coal. They are working in quite tough agricultural jobs or in the hotel industry. You know, there's there's these niches that they find themselves in. And they really had to struggle to maintain that and to, you know, assert their right to citizenship and their right to participation. One of the specific things that people might be surprised by or might not know about is the fact that people weren't necessarily judged in terms of IQ or what we might term mental age, but instead of something called wage age. I think I'm right in saying that. What do we mean by that concept? And can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, wage age is my own invention. So, you know, it's not that that term would have ever been available in the past. But wage age was trying to capture just how employers maybe thought of their workers. And they, in all the archives I've looked at, they do not think in terms of IQ. So IQ is a concept that is definitely available in the 20th century and is used by hospitals, by schools, who are trying to kind of grade and categorize the people that they work with. But in the labor market, I don't think it makes any sense. And employers are just not interested in knowing, oh, this person has an IQ of, you know, 62, or this person has a a mental age of six. That is not how they think. What they think about is, what can this person do in in the workplace? And what is that worth in terms of wages? So they've got these kind of structures of, you know, the the wage that we would pay to a starter, the wage that we would pay when somebody turns 18, the wage you get at 21. And they're using those categories of age as a way of making sense of the workers that they have. So instead of thinking about IQ, they maybe think, well, this person is on a starting wage or this person gets a apprentice wage. And the trade boards are doing these really interesting negotiations where they're sometimes saying, well, you say this person's on a, a kind of starting wage, but actually, look, he's really skilled on the machine. And so, you know, they negotiate sometimes wage rises. So so age is very important, but it's not mental age or IQ. And I think that's really important because it it stops us from kind of over amplifying the voice of eugenics. We might think that, you know, eugenics is a big thing in the 20th century and that there are certainly some awful histories of the kinds of violence that was meted out to people with disabilities in the name of eugenics. But when you look at the labor market, you don't really see that. Instead, you see other forms of categorization that I think were kinder, were gentler, that gave people more opportunities for growth and expansion and made them feel like they were part of communities because they were earning wages and they could they could see their value in those terms. We should talk a bit about eugenics because people may have only sort of a very general sense of what we mean by we say that. What do we mean and what role do you think it has had in our perception of this story? Eugenics is a whole suite of ideas, really, which are ways of sort of categorising and othering people who were understood in terms of being a sort of a threat to the race or a threat to the nation. And it was a kind of pseudoscience that took ideas of evolution and ideas of inheritance and tried to argue that there was a kind of a straightforward sense in which people whose lives were 
socially devalued might pass on those qualities to their children. And in the late 19th and early 20th century, across Europe and the US, it became very prominent in arguing that people who were deemed unfit or a threat to the race, in eugenic terms, seemed to be having more children and that they would somehow outbreed and outcompete people who were so-called good for the race. So, you know, there was a kind of eugenics panic that led to attempts to sterilize people or even in Nazi Germany to to wipe out people who were seen as eugenically threatening. So, you know, eugenics might be in terms of bodily impairment or disability, it might be in terms of race or other kinds of minoritizing characteristics. And that is a really important story, but it doesn't mean that all minorities necessarily came into contact with eugenic views and people with eugenic views in universities in in like research establishments elites in parliament their voices echo very loudly down the down the decades if you like to us but i want to try to get away from those loud voices and ask well actually what was it like to be somebody who was living with you know certain kinds of cognitive difference or embodied difference working in the textile mills in in Lancashire, for example, and we don't get eugenics in their environments. And one of the factors that seems to be important in the way in which these societies operated was the idea that people belonged to a community that would be there to help them if they needed to in some instances. So you had, for instance, uh, employers who would employ people from the same family and there'd be that sort of social contract. Do you think this was more of an important factor than perhaps we give it credit for? There were paternalistic employers and it's really interesting to me that when they talked about the family members of people who were identified as having learning disabilities, they didn't see those family members as less valuable. They didn't think that there was some kind of inheritance or some kind of taint to them that took away their value. Instead, they would say, well, you know, this employee's father or sister, they're really good workers. And so we understand that in order to keep their labor, we need to find a way of integrating their disabled sibling or their disabled daughter. So that's kind of, you know, a a really interesting indication of the limits of eugenics. It's, It's not there in these workplaces. But I think that the reason why those forms of inclusion made sense to employers was because they could also see the economic value of having workers who, you know, would be loyal. Employers could really see the value of having workers who would just come to work, who had very low levels of absenteeism, who had loyalty, who were pleased to undertake jobs of sweeping up or taking messages around the factory or packaging up products and sending them out uh, for delivery. Those were all roles that that needed to be fulfilled. So it's, it's not that they were always doing this because they were paternalistic. They were also doing it because these were good workers. And we shouldn't lose sight of the sort of wider economic stories and and forces here. At moments of economic turbulence or recession, I suppose, do we, can we trace any major changes to this story we've kind of outlined? The recessions of the 20th century show up these workers because They may be applying for unemployment benefits or they may just be found without any means of sustenance. So they're kind of, you know, thrown onto the welfare authorities and and, and so people discover them, if you like. So the, the periods of recession are interesting because they make this population visible where previously, through their own labor, they had been invisible. I do think that in periods of recession, 
it was harder to get by. It was harder to get by for everybody. And in the kind of the sources we have that try to chart in quantitative terms what, what levels of employment were experienced, you do see a dip in moments of recession or moments of disruption like major strikes. But I think maybe more resilience is there than we might imagine because you also see periods where, you know, there's economic disruption, but still there's quite high levels of employment, particularly in like certain sectors. So, I mean, I think agriculture was always a place where there were plenty of jobs to be had and, and not enough people to fulfill them. So there's a kind of patterning of the 20th century where, you know, recessions and tight labor markets create different kinds of opportunities. But there's no evidence that there's a kind of major sweep out of all these workers at any particular time of recession. And again, that kind of suggests to me the value that they had for employers. And I mentioned a little while ago the importance of not flattening this time period, I suppose. Are there changes that we can sketch across the period you cover from the 1910s to the 1950s? Yes, of course. And one of the interesting shifts that I see is a kind of speeding up or a kind of increase in work pressures from the 1950s. And that is a period where ideas of sort of resource management and human resources and efficiency in production and productivity are very prominent in debate and where there's a you know a lot of attempts are made to sort of modernize and make more efficient british workplaces and i do think that that makes it harder in some situations for people with other ways of working and people who you know might previously have just been recognized to be a slow worker it can make it harder for them to to be included. So perhaps contrary to what people might think about the 20th century and things kind of gradually getting better for disabled people and disabled people making their way out of institutions and living independently in the community, my sources really suggest a very different story of people finding it harder to find their economic niche and finding it harder to keep up with the pressures towards credentialization. So I'm thinking here of mass education in the second half of the 20th century when everybody has the right to attend secondary school and when the ages of, of school leaving rise. So that greater access to education, I think, shows up more profoundly the deficiencies of people who, you know, who aren't being given educational opportunities because they're not going to school or they're in the special school system. And, you know, they, they emerge without qualifications. And as more and more British young people do have school qualifications and employers are starting to expect that, it becomes harder to, to get a job on leaving school. So the increased formalisation almost leads to an increased exclusion. I think so. And there's also the rise of a more, maybe more cautious health and safety culture that sees employers starting to say, well, this, you know, this complicated machinery can't be used by somebody who might have some kind of disability or impairment. This computer can't be used by somebody who doesn't understand computers. So yeah, there's, there's quite a lot of obstacles there that start to make the workplace a, like a harder, a harder thing to navigate for people with maybe really low levels of literacy or lacking any qualifications. Are there any case studies or other stories that illuminate other aspects of the story that we've not touched on? The other 
aspect of it that we haven't really talked about is the fact that people who were in hospitals or asylums or colonies also had working lives. So we shouldn't see as only happening, you know, outside of those sites of, of institutional living. And when you look at the, the sources or the memoirs of people who have experienced that, in some ways, it their lives don't necessarily change that much when they're living in a hospital and maybe they're working out on license for a local farmer or they might be working in the hospital itself doing ward work or, or cleaning or stoking the boiler. They're often doing very much the same kinds of labour. So I think it's really interesting to take labour and work as experiences that kind of span those segregated institutional lives and lives lived out in the community because as historians, we're quite prone to saying, here's the era of segregation and here's the era of care in the community. But the experiences of labour might be really similar going across them. So there's a wonderful memoir that's written by David Barron, one of the quite few memoirs of people with intellectual disabilities. And he describes really vividly both his life as a child, from infancy he was in so-called mental deficiency institutions, and, you know, he worked his socks off in those places in ways that were fairly menial and quite exploitative. He wasn't paid for that work or was paid in kind of trivial ways, like a sixpence every now and again or some chocolate. And then when he finally got out of those institutions, he was actually very proactive in finding work for himself. And he, you know, he loved going to the cinema, for example. So he, in the end, got work in a, in a cinema helping the projectionist. And he was very good at kind of just going into shops and hotels and, and getting work. So, you know, he absolutely knew the value of, of having a job and, you know, was able to navigate that on his own behalf. But in some ways, like the work didn't change that much. He worked very hard for his whole life. And we can see a kind of strong degree of continuity across his working life. We should talk about the role that the people who had these disabilities had in this story. Were they able to sort of take control of their own lives and their own destinies? Throughout the archives that I've looked at, there's always been people who are very actively engaged in, you know, contesting what their employers say about them or what social workers say about them. So there's lots and lots of very articulate people with disabilities. But I guess that becomes a bit more organised and prominent in the 1970s. There's a very important conference in 1972, which is maybe for the first time, including people with intellectual disabilities as equal participants with non-disabled people and, you know, bringing them together, talking about our lives in the attempt to make disability activism genuinely inclusive of their perspectives. And that really requires quite a bit of support for people who, you know, maybe aren't literate or who haven't been used to having their voices listened to. But I do think that that gathers pace in the 1970s and through the work of lots of advocacy groups and activists, you kind of get more traditionally minded organisations like, for example, MenCap that started as a parents' advocacy group. You know, they, they get dragged into a different phase of activism which puts people with intellectual disabilities like at the front of making change happen. So, yeah, that's a process that's ongoing and I would say constantly needs to be safeguarded because for people whose voices are not necessarily going to cut through, you need to really make sure that you're committed to 
putting their voices at the centre stage. So you see a kind of gathering pace in the late 20th century. But ironically, some of the measures that are brought in to try to contest disability discrimination, I'm thinking here of the Disability Discrimination Act of 1995, make it quite hard because that act requires the individual who's been discriminated against to bring a case, to take it to tribunal, to, to prove that discrimination has happened. And it's not always easy for people with intellectual disabilities to do that. So by individualizing the process and, and putting the onus on the individual, I'm not sure that that act did a great deal to, to support measures to, to work against discrimination for this particular group of people. How would you like your research to change or complicate or shift, I suppose, our view of how people with learning disabilities were treated in the past? I think that my work helps us get away from the medical model. And by the medical model, I mean treating forms of disability as medical conditions that are based in people's bodies or brains. And it's been incredibly empowering for disabled people to understand disability as a kind of wider form of social organisation, what's often called the social model. And my work on labour markets and employment helps us understand something of those forms of discrimination and prejudice that were embedded in those kind of larger structures of, of workplaces and social attitudes and culture and so on. But it's also a hopeful, optimistic story that gives us a picture of resilience and how disabled people were able to gain inclusion and to support themselves and to make meaningful lives for themselves and develop their skills and, and market those skills. So it helps us get away from the educational and the medical establishments as somehow the source of where we should go when we understand disability history. And I think that it also helps us to put disability history more into the mainstream. So it's not just a, like a very niche subject that sits on the margins, but is actually a massive site of social experience. You could say that disabled people is the largest minorities of uh, the human population. It's estimated to affect around 20% of the population at, at any one time. And of course, lots of people will move into or out of that category as their life circumstances change. So it's something that really everybody has experienced, whether that's through themselves or, th or through family and friends. And yet we don't talk about it that much, or we assume it's sort of happening somewhere over there in, in a hospital ward or in a, an asylum. But actually thinking about disabled people as part of communities gets us to understand better that forms of bodily impairment and otherness are really part of the human condition and worth putting centre stage. And finally, do you think there are other lessons here for us in the 21st century, looking back to this history? I think the most important lesson for us today is that it is possible to have inclusion at a much higher level for people who are stigmatized or, or, or disabled by how society views them, La labeled people, I've termed them, and that's a very useful kind of indeterminate phrase. When people look back at the past, they often think that things were really terrible for disabled people and that the history is just a kind of history of shame and, and exclusion and pain. But actually, I think we can look back at the past and say, well, things were 
quite productive for disabled people when they were working very widely in, in across all these different sectors. And we might ask ourselves and challenge ourselves today, how could we make that possible in the 21st century? That was Lucy Delap, Professor in History at the University of Cambridge. If you enjoyed this episode, then you might also be interested in the Radio 4 series Disability and New History, which you can find now on BBC Sounds. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.